0: I'm a senior fellow at the uh, Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security here at the Atlanta Council, and I have the privilege of serving as your moderator for our panel, Transatlantic Missile Defense Architecture, Defining the Right Set, the, the Right Threat Set, which is, in a sense, uh, a loaded question. Now, missile defense is an established priority uh, of NATO. Uh, Since 2005, the alliance has been developing capabilities to defend its forces in the field. At a summit in 2010, it decided to include the protection of European populations and territory as an operational priority. And since then, the alliance and its member states have been investing a great deal in missile defense capability. The United States is putting billions of dollars into the European phase adaptive approach. Uh, which has a radar now in Turkey, Uh, Aegis ships in the Mediterranean, a a site in Romania soon to go uh, online, probably early next year, groundbreaking next year for another Aegis Ashore site in Poland uh, that will kick off Phase 3 of EPAA in 2018. Nation-states of the alliance are making big investments in missile defense. Norway has decided it will contribute some of its frigates to a transatlantic missile defense capability. Germany is modernizing its air and missile defense capability. Poland recently decided that it wants to obtain Patriots, a 5 to $10 billion investment, to develop its own first air and missile defense capability. And in a world of proliferating missile defense threats, in a world of proliferating increasingly capable missile threats, these are justified in investments. And when you look at the European strategic landscape, you essentially see two fronts uh, when it comes to missile defense. We talked earlier this morning about the Russian front, where a menacing bravado, as Damon Wilson described it, features Russian uh, verbal threats of nuclear targeting against NATO allies, particularly those supporting missile defense capabilities, backed by the modernization of its strategic nuclear missile capability modernization of its medium-range missile capability, including the deployment of Iskander SS-26 missiles, possibly to Kaliningrad and to Crimea. And to the south, you have Iran and its increasing arsenal of of missiles. You have the chaos in Iraq and Syria. And just uh, earlier this year, I believe it was in March, a scud from Syria landed on Turkish territory. We have a great panel to address the efforts the alliance is undertaking uh, to guard against these these threats. Uh, to my immediate left, I have Frank Rose, the Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance at the Department of State. He's been in that position since December of 2014. And prior to that, he was serving as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Space and Defense Policy. He brings to this position years in the Pentagon, uh, years on, the, in, on, on, on Capitol Hill, uh, where he was a senior professional staff member on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, and the House Armed Services Committee. And in fact, we first crossed paths back, I think it was in 2002, 2003, when uh, we traveled together to to Europe, to Turkey, actually, to Poland, and to France, rolling out uh, President Bush's vision for transatlantic missile defense built around the GBI, the ground-braced interceptor. Next, we have uh, Lieutenant General Fritz uh, Fluger, a retired general from Germany, who used to serve as the deputy commander of NATO's Allied Air Command in Ramstein. He brings to the table well over 30 years of experience in the German Air Force. He was trained initially as an air defense controller and took on senior commands in the German military. He was a commander of the German Air Force Air Operations Command, commander of the Combined Air Operations Center in UDM. And he's considered one of the preeminent experts on NATO air and missile defense. And we welcome him from Germany. And we have Professor Dr. Mustafa Kibaroglu, the Chair of the Political Science and International Relations Department at the Modern Education and Science University, MEF, in Istanbul. In addition to extensive writings on weapons of mass destruction and deterrence, Developments in the Middle East and other challenges facing uh, Turkey's national security policymakers, uh, he spent a fair amount of time in the United States working these issues. He was a postdoc fellow at the Monterey Institute in California. He was a fellow at the Belfer Center in Harvard University. And today, in addition to his university responsibilities, he serves as an advisor to the NATO Center for Excellence on Terrorism in, in Ankara. And to my far left, but certainly not to my, ever to my right, since we're both uh, the same party, so to speak, we have Heather Conley, the Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and the Director of the Europe Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Heather and I first crossed paths. In a way, I can see three of us, Mustafa, welcome to the crowd, uh, all met in some way in missile defense uh, back in early 2002, 2003. She was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State um, responsible for Northern and and Central Europe. She served as the Executive Director of the Office of the Chairman of the American Red Cross. And at CSIS, she's running a very aggressive set of programs, addressing security, European security developments, doing very interesting scenario work on military contingents in that region. And she's a regular uh, person on some of the more prestigious networks, including CNN, MSNBC, BBC, PBS, and such. So thank you all for joining us. Frank, we're going to turn to you and get your insight on what's the progress being made and are we addressing the right threat
1: set? Great. Well, Ian, uh, thanks again for your kind introduction and for having me here today. Uh, It's always a pleasure to have an opportunity to uh, address the Atlantic Council Annual Missile Defense Uh, conference and to be alongside so many experts in this important field. Uh, Today I would like to focus my remarks on how the Obama administration has defined the ballistic missile threat and how we are cooperating with partners around the world to address this threat. I'll keep my comments brief to maximize our time to more freely engage in a discussion. The 2010 Ballistic Missile Defense Review, or BMDR, makes clear that the United States' missile defenses are focused on defending against limited missile threats to the U.S. homeland and regional missile threats to our deployed forces, allies, and partners throughout the world. The development of ballistic missiles by countries like Iran and North Korea and the proliferation of these systems around the world is what drives our threat assessment. Our deployment of missile defenses is focusing on strengthening the twin U.S. goals of deterrence and assurance. In doing so, they also contribute to international peace and stability and reinforce our nonproliferation aims. At the same time, we have made clear, both in our policy and in our capabilities, we have deployed our missile defenses Uh, efforts are not intended to affect the strategic balance with Russia or China. As a practical matter, the U.S. experience with missile defense suggests that attempting to develop a comprehensive missile defense system to defend against ballistic missile attack from Russia would be extremely challenging and costly given the size and sophistication of Russia's strategic missile force and the relatively limited number of missile defense interceptors that would be available to defend against such a large force. It is to address the regional threats from the Middle East and North Korea and to enhance our regional deterrence posture that leads us to cooperate with our allies and partners in deploying missile defense systems and architectures today. For example, I just returned from a trip to the Middle East last night where the United States and the Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC, member states have committed to develop a region-wide ballistic missile defense capability, including through the development of a ballistic missile early warning system. At the recent U.S. GCC summit, the United States committed to work with the GCC to conduct a study of a GCC sea-wide missile defense architecture and offered technical assistance in the development of a GCC-wide ballistic missile early warning system. Finally, we agreed to hold a senior uh, leader missile defense tabletop exercise to maximize improved regional missile, uh, ballistic missile defense cooperation. In Europe, your- We continue to make excellent progress implementing the European Phase Adaptive Approach, or EPAA, which will serve as the U.S. national contribution to NATO's missile defense system. Starting in 2011 with Phase I, we deployed a missile defense radar in Turkey and began the sustained deployment of an Aegis ballistic missile defense-capable ship in the Mediterranean. With NATO's declaration of interim capability in 2012, the radar in Turkey was transitioned to NATO operational control. Additionally, we have been working with Spain to deploy four U.S. Aegis BMD-capable ships at the naval facility at Rota, which will allow us to increase our rotational presence in the region and respond to potential crises more quickly. We are on track to complete deployment of an Aegis Ashore site in Romania as part of Phase 2 of the EPAA later this year. When operational, this site, combined with BMD capable ships in the Mediterranean, will enhance coverage of NATO from short and medium range ballistic missiles launched from the Middle East. Finally, Phase 3 will involve the construction of an Aegis Ashore site in Poland equipped with the new standard missile Block 2A interceptor. President Obama's fiscal year 2006 budget request designates approximately $200 million for the establishment of the site, including construction which will begin early next year, allowing us to remain on schedule to have the site completed by 2018. The Phase III site in Poland, when combined with other EPAA assets, will provide ballistic missile defense coverage for, of all NATO European territory. In the Asia-Pacific, we are continuing missile defense cooperation through our bilateral alliances and partnerships. I'd highlight that the next generation of the Aegis Missile Defense Interceptor, the standard missile Block 2A which we are co-developing with Japan, just completed a successful flight test earlier this month. We also recently deployed a second missile defense radar to Japan, which will enhance the defense of both the United States and Japan. Finally, over the past 20 years, the United States and NATO have offered Russia various proposals for missile defense cooperation and transparency. Russia declined to accept our proposals. As you're aware, Russia's illegal actions in Ukraine led to the suspension of our dialogue on missile defense cooperation. But prior to that suspension, Russia continued to demand that the United States provide quote, legally binding guarantees that US missile defenses will not harm or diminish Russia's strategic nuclear deterrent. These guarantees would have been based on criteria which would have limited our missile defenses and undermined our ability to protect ourselves, our deployed forces, and our allies and friends against an evolving and growing ballistic missile threat. The 2010 BMDR is quite clear on our policy. U.S. missile defenses are neither designed nor directed against Russia or China's strategic nuclear forces. However, By the same token, we have also made it clear that we cannot and will not accept legally binding uh, or other constraints that would uh, limit our ability to defend ourselves, our allies, and our partners. The United States will continue to insist on having the flexibility to respond to the evolving ballistic missile threat. Allow me to conclude by emphasizing that U.S. cooperation on missile defense is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Threats are diverse, and so must must be our solutions. We tailor our unique sets of capabilities to fit with each regional goal, uh, with each regional security environment stretching from Europe to the Asia-Pacific region. And as more actors develop sophisticated ballistic missile capabilities, it is incumbent upon us to take the appropriate steps to defend the U.S. homeland, our deployed forces, and our allies and partners. I can personally attest that our diplomatic engagements the last six years have made us and our allies better equipped to meet the threats of today and nimble enough to respond to what threats may lay ahead. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Frank. Let me just ask a quick question, because you brought into a discussion on Europe, the GCC, and your yeah. trip to the region last week. Do you envision a linkage between NATO's uh, the transatlantic missile defense architecture and that that is evolving between,
1: among the GCC countries? Uh, I would say perhaps. I think our focus right now is getting a series of baseline capabilities uh, online in the Gulf region but I do not discount the possibility in the future that we could move towards cooperation. For example, you have a number of uh, GCC states, such as the UA- UAE, who have liaison offices mm-hmm. at NATO. So we have no plans currently, but possibly that could be a direction we might want to move. Interesting, Fritz?
2: I just wanted to comment on your question. I think there is a natural link. Yeah. If you link the countries that are... Uh, cooperating in ballistic missile defense, the Gulf Council uh, nations, then uh, <laughs> Israel, and then in NATO Europe, you see a clear link. And uh, in the can- context of Israel, there's an overlap of the US, mm-hmm. the European command's ballistic missile defense mission, and NATO's missile defense mission. It's a natural
0: overlap. Yep. But let me push you to go on next, because Frank gave a, uh, a good update on the progress being made mm-hmm to date on transatlantic missile defense architecture. In your view from from Germany, from your experience as a NATO commander, in light of the the challenges before NATO today to the east and to the south, is this progress sufficient?
2: Ah, difficult difficult point. Uh, But let me uh, briefly go back into the history of ballistic missile defense in NATO, Ian. And thanks again for the kind introduction. And I really feel back home here in Washington after two years of absence. uh, last time i was here in the area I was 2013 leading a seminar on cyber and space in norfolk for uh, yeah. secte uh as already mentioned ballistic missile defense uh, was adopted uh, at the lisbon summit in 2010 as a nato mission and it aims to protect nato european territory population and forces against a ballistic missile threat mainly from the middle east there was no particular threat highlighted in the document the main argument was the growing proliferation which NATO needed to take into account in order to keep its political leverage. And then the interim capability was declared at the Chicago Summit in 2012, mainly based on the uh, U.S.-European phase adaptive approach, phase one capabilities, which continue to be the backbone of uh, ballistic missile defense in in, uh, NATO Europe. The TPY-2 sensor in Turkey, TOA to NATO uh, already in peacetime, Uh, and uh, an Aegis ship available and, of course, NATO's C-2 command and control at Ramstein. Uh, I would like to underline that ballistic missile defense, as adopted by NATO, is a mission in which 28 should and will and do support each other in that mission and that it is a mission which demonstrates NATO's shared commitment in that mission. Uh, NATO is now approaching the next step in capability development. Uh, It was mentioned that the Aegis Ashore in in Romania will most probably be uh, technically ready uh, at the end of the year. There will be additional ships uh, and enhanced (coughs) command and control capabilities available uh, so that uh, most probably at the next summit, 2016 in Warsaw, we will see initial operating capability be declared. Now, let's have a look at the air defense environment as it is today in NATO. NATO performs day-to-day, 24-7, 365, uh, air policing against the non-NATO military threat. Uh, NATO fighter aircraft are on alert, uh, available to the NATO air defense commander, and intercepting, aircraft, non-NATO military aircraft in international airspace in order to prevent uh, violation of NATO airspace and to preserve the integrity of NATO airspace. And we are doing, as already said, ballistic missile defense under the interim capability. Uh, That is uh, command and control exercised by uh, Aircom Ramstein and command and control also, and this is uh, how ballistic missile defense mission is performed command and control-wise in NATO, the three Patriot <clears throat> elements uh, based on the ground in Turkey, augmenting Turkish air defenses uh, against uh, possible ballistic missiles flying into Turkey from Syria. Karamanmaras, uh, Adana, the Spanish, uh, Marash uh, the, the German Patriot systems, and uh, in Gaziantep, the U.S. Patriot systems. Except for the last one, which penetrated. Yeah, as there are only two fire units next to those uh, bigger cities, their mission is to prevent the bigger cities against attacks and not to defend uh, Turkish territory in general. There is a change in the air defense environment. Russian long range activity has increased, but uh, it is still not yet at Cold War levels. Uh, There are frequent intercepts in international airspace over Baltics and North Sea, uh, but so far uh, no serious uh, incidents were in the air. The deployment, as already mentioned, of nuclear-capable SS-26 Iskander short-range ballistic missiles into Kaliningrad is, to say the least, uh, uh, irritating. Quite a few allies and the modernization of ICBMs. And the the uh, procurement of uh, 40 Topol-M missiles is also quite irritating. So on the other hand, these movements should be seen, as I see it, in the context of the Russian military strategy, which gives nuclear weapons a prominent role in compensating for Russians, uh, Russia's conventional weaknesses, and, uh, which has been the case over the last 10, 15 years, and which are used to intimidate neighboring countries. Ukrainian crisis definitely was a wake-up call for the alliance. The key question is, has there been a change in paradigm? I don't think so. Uh, however, it was reason enough uh, to have a fresh lof- look at the alliance's rapidly available defense capabilities, air, land, and sea capabilities. And uh, you <coughs> will recall that the uh, was a very high readiness joint task force created, the so called Spearhead Force, that just trained last week in uh, an exercise in Poland. Politically, very important as a reassurance measure for those new NATO members, the Baltic states, Poland, and others. The Allies are not yet ready to regard Russia as a threat. And as mentioned, 360 degree coverage for ballistic missile defense for NATO would require massive extension of the sensor network and massive investment in active defense capabilities, lower and upper layer capabilities. NATO ballistic missile defense was designed to protect against a limited regional threat, not a threat from Russia. And an adversary like Russia always outnumbers defensive capabilities. Therefore... I think we should, as I mentioned in my question, we should uh, have always a strategic view in which uh, deterrence underpinned by capabilities, offensive capabilities, and strategic communications play a significant role. And this includes force protection of, for instance, the VJTF, or the Spearhead force, by, Ballistic missile defense capabilities capable to defend against short-range ballistic missiles. And final point, as there are some nations considering to buy national ballistic missile defense capabilities, they should keep in mind that the architecture in NATO Europe calls for an integrated system which requires all these systems being integrated into a single system commanded and controlled by one single C2 node at Ramstein, And this is really important to be kept in mind that uh, those systems, whichever are bought by the nations, are capable of integrating into the system uh, so that the system can continue to function as an integrated system. And a final political point, we should not forget, Russia is needed to solve critical issues in NATO Europe's enabled, and the clue must be found to reopen the communication channel to Russia. And uh, I leave it as a question mark whether learning from the Cold War times and NATO's double-track decision and the follow-on INF Treaty probably could give us a clue how to go ahead. Thank you. Fritz. thank you very much. Mustafa,
0: let me ask you, because you raised the uh, issue about the scud dropping into, into Turkey, do you feel that uh, Turkey feel, does Turkey feel, in your, me, in your view, is the alliance playing, paying enough attention to the southern threats, the southern missile threats that confront the alliance? And how does that relate to the debate that seems to be going on in the Turkish government over the air and missile defense system it's trying to develop? And here, of course, I'm talking about its consideration of a Chinese air and missile defense system.
3: Thank you. I believe this is the crux of matter. But first of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation and for the nice introduction. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here to speak to before such a distinguished audience and with this highly distinguished panel. Well, uh, before answering your question, I would like to just give a little bit of background information about how Turkey looked at the missile defense issue over the past couple of decades at least, and maybe not all of you know people here be familiar with uh, Turkey's uh, geopolitics. Well, to our south, we have uh, failed states, non-states, so-called rogue states. To our north, we have uh, the you know, little green men, as you know mentioned once. Uh, there's this Hebrew war going on. And to our east, we have Iran. I don't mention the rest of uh, Turkey's neighborhood because we are, at least for the time being, in uh, uh, relatively better relations with our other neighbors well uh, turkey has always been therefore uh, interested in having uh, uh, elaborate air defense systems especially starting with the 1991 uh, gulf war having seen the uh, not necessarily the numerical performance but how the how generals have seen on the screens of the, and their TVs uh, the patriots uh, shooting some of the incoming uh, missiles and since then there was uh, some sort of a, a rapprochement between uh, with this particular issue with respect to this particular uh, issue between Turkey and the United States with uh, the issue of well, um, uh, uh, buying or somehow deploying Patriot uh, anti-ballistic missile systems. And in due course, uh, Turkey, Israel, the U.S. have been engaged in some trilateral talks about the possible of Turkey, uh, U.S., and Israel cooperating in the de- development of Arrow 2 which has uh, not uh, come to an end at this from Turkey's perspective. So um, that was a part of the uh, issue, but also during the 1990s, uh, there was uh, some concern on Turkey's side with respect to the development of United U.S. Uh, national missile defense because of the uh, adamant opposition of the Russians as well as Chinese because Russia threatened with uh, not uh, living up to its commitments with respect to the INF. Uh, because of these missiles threatening Turkey. China threatened with uh, relaxing its uh, export controls, which would end up uh, in uh, you know, uh, some of the uh, sensitive material falling to the hands of the states or non-states around Turkey's neighborhood. But um, it, ha- Turkey has always been willing to have this, uh, or be part of the missile defense system. And in the run-up to the Lisbon summit in 2009, which has been mentioned here, there were some Uh, um, accusations about Turkey of uh, like dragging its feet or uh, uh, blocking uh, a a consensus decision within the uh, uh, alliance, which was not the case. Turkey had a number of uh, uh, expectations from the missile defense, I mean, NATO shield or the missile shield. Uh, Turkey wanted to have uh, this system to cover the entire uh, uh, territory of Turkey. Um, Turkish authorities wanted this. Uh, uh, our former Prime Minister, now President Erdogan, uh, made it a, a condition for the missile sheet not to cover Israel. That was another issue. And also, Turkey was sensitive about naming the names of countries that, that, would be, that could be mentioned in the document, which was, as has been mentioned here. It was uh, not the case, because Turkey did not want to give uh, Iran the pretext of being mentioned in text, and therefore, a justification for development of its further de- development of its uh, ballistic missile capabilities. But uh, at the Lisbon summit, uh, problems have been solved, and Turkey agreed uh, to uh, the uh, deployment of the radar system in Kurejic now, which is operation since 2012, uh, concomitantly con- 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 with the Chicago summit. But this is just part of the issue. And, and coming uh, to your question, Turkey wants uh, to have a nationwide. Uh, air defense system, not only against the uh, ballistic missiles, but also against the air power uh, capabilities in the hands of all of its neighbors. Um, uh, therefore, launch a bit. And in launching that bid, Turkey uh, d- determined four major criteria, out of, uh, um, among many others. Uh, f- these four f- uh, criteria were um, technology transfer, uh, joint investment and long-term partnership, uh, quick delivery, so to speak. I mean, uh, this first couple of uh, battalions to be deployed as soon as possible and also uh, should be affordable and cheap. So uh, out of the uh, uh, bidders, uh, uh, consortium that have uh, uh, been part of the bid, you know, uh, uh, Chinese company seems to have uh, made the best offer in many respects. And, uh, well, this is this, the process is still going on. It is not uh, finalized. And uh, I had a chance to talk with the current Undersecretary of uh, Turkish Defense Industries, as well as former uh, Undersecretary, as well as other uh, uh, technical and professional people at the Turkish Undersecretary of uh, Defense Industries. Well, um, I think uh, the problem lies at uh, uh, sharing technology, because uh, when looked at the issue from uh, of course the alliance perspective, one would expect Turkey to choose uh, the, um, either the Eurosum or the Patriot uh, the uh, uh, offer uh, uh, allies at least, and that would probably leave no pro- uh, you know, issue or no concern in the minds of our Western allies that there would be a compatibility problem and also maybe more important than that. There is uh, serious concern in the West. Uh, When I talk uh, talk about this with my colleagues and uh, and the professionals over the last couple of years uh, in different fora, at the headquarters of NATO, in in conference uh, panels like this, this, uh, the West is concerned about a serious leakage of sensitive uh, information if and when Turkey deployed the uh, uh, Chinese. uh, 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 a system uh, uh, all over Turkey. Uh, Turkish authorities, technicians, professionals, uh, really, um, uh, uh, you know, are convinced that Turkey can uh, produce a secure uh, interface between the NATO system and the Turkish national system. But this is, after all, a political issue. And I, I don't think we, are um, Turkish authorities, are able to convince uh, their Western counterparts that there will be no leakage even if uh, uh, technologically proven or could be proven by the Turks. so. um, But what I see uh, in my conversation with the Turkish authorities is that this is the very heart of your uh, uh, question. I mean, does Turkey feel uh, confident or uh, does Turkey think Turks think that European allies understand Turkey's concern? No, uh, this is uh, the crux of the matter, as I said at the beginning, because... Most Turks, if not all of them, uh, uh, keep telling me the same thing. Our Western allies do not understand the change in turkey 's security needs as well as it, the change in turkey 's uh, abilities as well as expectations and its uh, future role in the region, and also uh, they still keep uh, seeing Turkey as it was during Cold War years as a client, as a customer, nothing more than that. Well, uh, when this issue comes up i 'm telling my uh, friends, uh, uh, colleagues from, from you know, Western countries, NATO, NATO countries, uh, and, and tell them to go to where um, the Turkish former uh, uh, headquarters of the Undersecretary of Defense Industries was, and look at the, former, the picture of the former building, which is not there anymore, and also look at the you know, building which has been built over the past several year, years. And it, it is maybe five times bigger in terms of staffing, maybe five, six times uh, more populated. And in terms of budget, maybe 10 times more. And also in terms of the uh, uh, capacity of the projects, maybe even 10 times bigger. So Turkey aims at becoming, of course, it's a difficult thing, but becoming self-sufficient to the extent possible in terms of uh, you know, uh, deploying its own uh, defensive capability, but also become, wants to become a key player. Uh, in the defense uh, industries market. So uh, in that respect, I think the, the key issue is uh, the technology transfer, which the U.S. authorities uh, are quite seemingly reluctant in terms of meeting Turkey's expectation. That, although there are some examples with other countries like Japan, like Sweden, like uh, Spain, Portugal, and other countries are allies. So the expectation is maybe I can uh, give some quotations from my conversation with the authorities yeah. and in the next round.
0: So in short, the Chinese option is still in play, even though it would risk potentially denying Turkey the benefits of NATO's air and missile defense architecture.
3: Well, uh, I think these are two different issues. NATO's air defense uh, architecture will be there because uh, the radar is there, and Turkey will benefit uh, from NATO's architecture. But at the same time, of course, it would be better if Turkey had a nationwide system which would be fully perfectly compatible with the, Western uh, uh, alliance system. So there lies the problem. And as I said, uh, hopefully the issue is not uh, finalized it, and there are some uh, yards to go. And uh, I think uh, there are negotiations between Turkish uh, and American, as well as European uh, 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 producers. And uh, um, maybe in the next uh, few months, we might see some achievements, some breakthroughs.
0: Heather, so we've had an American, a German, and a Turkish perspective, and what I'm going to turn to you to see is to give us your insights, um, both from your work at CSIS and your time in, in, at the State Department, and what are the lessons and what are the implications of managing uh, what are the disparate set of threats among the politics and, and the diplomacy of NATO when it comes to defending the alliance against missile threats?
4: Well, Ian, thank you so much. It's great to be with everyone, and thank you all for such great comments. Um, Before we began, we were sort of chatting out in the hallway, and everyone's beginning with, you know, the brief history of, uh, because any debate and discussion that's gone on for 13 years, and this conversation began... In 2002, a very different conversation. This was about GBI, uh, long range, U.S. protection. Uh, it was a very difficult bilateral conversations with the Polish government, the Czech government. Slowly, we began to NATOize that's sort of my verb NATOize this idea and thinking. And then in 2009, we shifted significantly. Uh, now, this was about short and medium-term uh, range missiles. This was about protecting Europe and our allies. This was about focusing on the threat to Iran. And, and the reason I talk about that history is that I think it's important to understand that there was a, you know, the the politics surrounding that shift was pretty horrific. Um, and I think the Obama administration um, has uh, understood that that switch was difficult. But the reason I raise that is that, that you know trust was fundamentally broken. That was a pr- pretty significant shift. Then we were trying something else. And then we rebuilt the concept of what we were trying to do on missile defense. And we then continued to nato NATOize it, uh, particularly in the strategic concept in 2010. And, and if, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of gnashing of teeth before the Lisbon summit that we were, why couldn't NATO identify the threat that they needed the missile defense protection or ballistic missile defense protection? In hindsight, it may have been prescient because in some ways we have to retain the flexibility of knowing because threats change over time. And I want to get back to that in a moment that the threat picture, I believe, has now changed significantly. Even though we had one plan, 2002, 2003, the plan shifted in 2009, we've been building, building this capability. It's a core task for NATO. I think we've accomplished an extraordinary amount of rebuilding trust. But the common factor that never went away, even though our telemetry changed and our protection environment changed, we never got rid of the disagreement as General Wilhelm said, uh, uh, over Russia. Russia never uh, agreed and supported uh, this project, and I would argue it's because while the telemetry may have changed, the geography didn't change. The fact is that infrastructure was being built in the new member states uh, at that time, they're no longer new, and, and now we, we continue to have that challenge. So if I can, uh, let me, and just to clarify one thing, absolutely the NATO-Russia Council has been suspended due to Crimea, but it was Russia in October of 2013 that unilaterally suspended the missile defense discussions in the NATO-Russia Council. Why October 2013? Well, I think it's apparent Romania broke ground uh, for its plan, and that, again, there's there's a connection there that we have to understand. So I would argue, uh, to General Wilhelm's point, there actually has been a fundamental change in paradigm in Europe and the security threat. Um, And I think we're struggling to assess that. Now, there are many, I think, in the US government that would disagree with me that it's been a, a paradigm shift. But I, and certainly the alliance does not fully agree with that. But I believe we actually need to undertake another BMD review. Because what looked like in 2010 is not what it looks like in 2015. I think this has to be a a conversation of constant review and assessment. Um, And in some ways, I have to say, I liken this discussion to the same conversation we've been having about the U.S. force posture in Europe today. Because everyone's still motoring on on the 2010 force posture review. We're taking things out of Europe. We're, you know, if Some of that's for domestic purposes. We don't need it anymore. So in some ways, the bureaucracy is on autopilot. But the threat environment has changed profoundly. And now we're sort of caught in the middle. Do we leave equipment there? Do we reposition people there? We have to reassess what the current threat environment it is. Certainly, not only to the east and Russia, but w- Iran, whether there's an, ad- an agreement or not an agreement, their regional picture has deeply disturbing and troubling signs of regional instability. What does that mean for the alliance? So uh, we need to fundamentally rethink this. Um, and I would, I would argue this will be a very uncomfortable conversation with our allies. This assessment and review will be very Uncomfortable for exactly what uh, General Wilhelm noted, no one wants to go back to a cold war setting. No one wants to do this. Um, however, I think we have to very in a sober way, reflect on the changes what does the ally, what do the allies need to do? To, um, to understand the assessment and to respond to it in a, in a clear and transparent way. Let's also uh, make no mistake, Russia is going to continue to raise the stakes in this area. Exactly, I think, absolutely right. Uh, the, the nuclear question is being more pronounced because of conventional uh, challenges, but that makes this even more important that we need to have a NATO conversation about this. And I think Secretary Carter's very important visit to Europe and the defense, the NATO defense ministerials uh, meetings uh, yesterday are very foundational in saying, we need a new look at the nuclear doctrine. Very controversial. But I think NATO has to make some moves before next year's Warsaw summit because we're only, I believe, I hope I'm wrong, but I believe we're only going to see the threat environment grow towards the east. Yes, it's bluster uh, from uh, you know, Russian officials, but I think there's some things on the ground we really need to look at. Quite frankly, NATO is a bit rusty on this. We're reluctant. We're, we're reactive, and we, I understand, and we should understand that. We need to rethink our posture. We need to get Russia back into the OSCE principles of m- military exercise notification. We have to get Russia back to that transparency that is absolutely vital to return to the two-track dialogue that General Wilhelm was talking about. But this is a non-negotiable issue. We have to get them back. So I think NATO is in a good place right now, but it has to have an honest discussion among the 28 countries. What is the threat, both from the east and the south, I think there has to be a reassessment on the BMD question. And quite frankly, there may have to be significant new investments. That may be the outcome of the review. But um, Frank, I I think with all due respect, when we talk about the threat, and you're talking about Iran and North Korea, we have to put Russia into that conversation. We don't want to be here, but we have to understand it. And I think the alliance uh, is strong yeah. enough and united enough to at least have that discussion. Okay. I'm going to yeah.
0: ask Heather one question, yeah. then yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so. and then i to turn to Frank and Fritz, because no. I okay. see so you're eager to yeah. jump in.
4: And so the debate <laughs> well, begins. <laughs> but just to add a
0: touch of clarity to what you're yeah. saying, Heather, it sounds like you're saying that we need to rethink um, NATO's missile defense program to give it an extra punch against emerging Russian capabilities, if not current missile right. capabilities. Right. And then second, that we need to either adjust or complement EPA, the european yes. Face Adaptive Approach, so it can better address threats to the east.
4: Is it? That said perfectly. Absolutely. And as I said, there's not agreement. In fact, I think we're struggling with the assessment ourselves. We're being, de- you know, a lot of capabilities have been demonstrated. We haven't focused enough on Russia's military modernization program. Um, A lot of it's aspirational. Uh, It may not be followed through, but we have to understand it. And then, as an alliance, make some calculations on what investments are required um, and and where we need to do that. I think we can't just close our eyes and hope this just gets better tomorrow. I think we have to be mature and sober enough to make an assessment and make a value judgment on what needs to be put into place.
0: Well, it's interesting, I'm turning, turning to Frank, because Frank, Fritz, and Mustafa all gave very impressive presentations, but there was a slight avoidance, I would say, almost of the threat posed by by Russia. Yeah. I mean, listening to what Heather says, she makes a good case. Shouldn't the alliance be spending more time and more explicit time and press directing more resources to the ballistic missile threat posed by Russia in light of its conduct in in Eastern Europe, its its current deployments, its modernization efforts, mm-hmm. and of course its threats?
1: Well, Ian, what I would say is that at the top level, I agree with Heather. Is that We, given recent events, the alliance needs to take a hard look at its security posture with regards to Russia. And we are doing that internally within the U.S. government and at NATO. Where I would disagree with her a bit, and I talked about that in my opening statement, is based on our previous experience, it would be very difficult technically and from a financial point of view to develop a missile defense capability to uh, defend against Russia's ballistic missiles, number one. Number two, there is no political consensus within the alliance to do that. Number three, our policy remains the same, as US missile defenses and NATO missile defenses are not directed against Russia, nor do they have the technical capability to deal with advanced, very advanced Russian systems. But at the top level, I agree, is that there have been changes on the ground. Therefore, we need to adjust appropriately. And again, there is an internal US review looking at this. And NATO is taking account for this as well. Fritz? Uh,
2: Thank you, Ian. Uh, Two comments. Uh, Heather, thank you very much for for your thoughts, and uh, I'm especially grateful that, at least to my understanding, you picked up some of my thoughts during my presentation. Um, When I said uh, that it is uh, very difficult to develop a 360-degree coverage uh, of ballistic missile defense for NATO Europe, uh, I think that was underpinned by by Frank's statement. But I would like to add that uh, in order to, let's say, tell Russia This is NATO's position, and uh, we want to engage with you on strategic communication and communications. But you should, you, Russia, should understand that there are red lines and that NATO is willing to invest and deploy capabilities that might be required for crisis management. And that includes, and I think I made it clear, that includes protection of the VJTF, Uh, and the NAF probably deployed as a crisis (coughs) um, management mechanism into the area with ballistic missile defense, air defense capabilities. And when you look at the overall architecture, I come back to a point, Mustafa, that uh, you probably will not like to hear, but I want to underline that NATO, the political leaders in NATO, have given SACUR the responsibility to protect in peacetime, alliance territory against an air defense threat. And that includes everything. And what Turkey is doing at the moment, and from an operational commander's position, I do not like it, is trying to build up something nationally underneath that big umbrella. So Sakir, the operational commander at, at Ramstein, is given the authority to do air policing against Russian long-range uh, aviation activity, but what about non-NATO military activity around te- Turkey from other countries? No, this is national business suddenly. So this is uh, not the way as I, as a former deputy commander of an operational command, given that mission, uh, think about it. We think about it as being an in- integrated mission in which we take care as given the authority by the political masters uh, as given by the uh, by the political masters uh, that, that mission to to defend and this includes the integration of all uh, systems in let 's say having an effect in the air or space above NATO territory and that should be kept in mind if there is a system not capable to integrate into the overall system then there are question marks about its uh, overall effectiveness.
3: Well, um, a couple of points and then maybe a quick answer to your uh, point. Well, uh, first of all, I agree with Frank uh, in in the sense that Russia is such a huge uh, strategic as well as operational capabilities with respect to ballistic missiles that I'm not sure if uh, NATO could, you know, develop such a system to defend and provide 100 percent, if not 100 percent, a large... uh, uh, A protective capability to the uh, allied uh, countries. So, and that will also run country or uh, or run against uh, what uh, the United States, uh, in in the first place, and then Europeans have uh, kept telling the Russians that this is not against you. This against uh, this and that. So, therefore, I don't think uh, NATO should give an image that you know it's it's going to transform its missile defense capability. That will be effective against Russia, Russian capabilities. Henry uh, is right in the sense that we should bring in uh, the Russians in, uh, in the negotiations back to the table. I think there, this is an issue that I keep um, discussing with my Russian colleagues, those who are pretty close to Putin and his former and current advisors and academics who are in his close entourage. They, they, they uh, keep telling me that uh, the uh, level of communication between the United States and Russia is almost at zero, that there is in, in much worse than the Cold War times. Um, uh, so I think we should prioritize uh, the threats all around the world, not just in this part of the world. Uh, we need uh, Russia uh, when we deal with Iran. We need Russia when we deal with ISIS. We need Russia when we deal with the Koreans, North Koreans, etc. And how can we do this when we are you know, imposing sanctions, just like the Russians keep uh, telling me, uh, uh, sanctions on uh, Russia and, and make uh, sanctions even tougher every next day. So this is uh, an issue that we should discuss. And there I have a proposal, which is somewhat cru- controversial that I know. And I have written on this subject extensively with respect to the uh, nuclear weapons that are deployed in Europe, uh, US nuclear weapons, and because uh, Russians have always made this a uh, big issue. And two or three years ago, when I was in Poland, um, Uh, I, I, you know, I thought I was, you know, not in Poland, but in in, in 21st century, but back in the 1980s, uh, in in a conference, as if War was still going on. And they have really attacked the the West uh, with respect to the very presence of these uh, um, weapons that are political weapons. Everybody knows they don't have any military uh, operational I. Usefulness, uh, especially against uh, threats uh, posed by Russia, so maybe withdrawing these missiles would be, an, a, a, you know, perceived as a step forward that the, that would force Russians to at least uh, do something to reciprocate and, you know, get Russia and the U.S. and West NATO uh, closer to talk about threats uh, emerging, threats and threats that are existing, and, and uh, solve all this uh, all together. With respect to Turkey's choice, well, we just heard from General Cartwright that um, uh, you know countries uh, with this missile defense system, can, countries can buy their own missile defense system. Of course, uh, uh, therefore, there's room for having a nationwide system which would be compatible with NATO assets. But I think here uh, the uh, bid has been extended several times. That Turkey has apparently given its decision, but not a final decision with respect to Chinese uh, uh, defense system. But uh, I think there, is, there, is, there have been some steps uh, made by Turkish authorities which await some steps to be made uh, by the U.S. or European authorities.
0: I'm going to be a little bit unfair to Heather because I, I want okay. to um, move on to open questions to, to other participants. But I want to just quickly go down, 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 down the list here, starting with, with Heather, give her an opportunity to respond to some of these points. But with this basic question, what is the missile, missile defense contingency? What is the missile threat contingency the alliance should be most worried about? Okay. Because in my view, it's not a contingency involving the total onslaught of Russian military um, m- m- all its missiles, you know, to devastate Berlin, Paris, and, 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 and such. It's really the limited use of the capabilities that come with missile uh, ballistic missiles: speed, accuracy, firepower. To shut down certain capabilities along NATO's eastern per- per- periphery uh, for a limited land grab. The other contingency that would keep me alive, keep me awake at night, is that loose scud uh, to Turkey's south, because that's where the chaos is, or most of the cha- much of the chaos of the world is today, and we saw a bit of it uh, hit Turkey actually th- this spring. So it's a limited contingency in which. Missile defense could actually play a very important role, and I think the alliance has the resources to do it, but just isn't really planning for it. Heather,
4: yeah, um, I, I think from the threat from Russia, I see it as absolutely the nuclear blackmail question. You know whether it would be a, a quick seizure of territory, and then suing uh, for peace with nuclear weapons. That's obviously the nightmare, worst case scenario. I mean, we've seen rhetorical nuclear blackmail warning the Danish government uh, that if they even inch closer, they're you know, going to be very susceptible. I think this rhetoric is only going to ratchet it up, ratchet up. And so we have to decide, oh, it's just bluster? Or are they going to be moving components in to be able to make that a reality? This gets back to the need for transparency, Notification. We have to get back to the basic rules and to open those channels of communication so we don't misunderstand. Because right now, it's awfully hard to listen, officially, uh, to what's going on and not develop a much more robust uh, system. So I agree with you from the east as well as from the south. Two quick questions. And this is the part that just, you know, the frustration mounts. Because you're absolutely right. If, we, if NATO were to decide, look, we have to now consider Russia as a potential uh, missile uh, threat. We, it's a self fulfilling prophecy of what the Russian government has been banging on us for a decade plus. This is about us, this is about us, we've always known it's about us. Well, now you've made it about Russia. I, and I, and you know, yes, I feel frustrated by that, but I don't think that should limit us from recognizing and assessing uh, soberly what that threat actually is. And Frank, I am delighted that there's a parallel review going on both with the US and with NATO. I think, again, we, if we don't have the courage to even make an honest assessment, then, boy, we got big, bigger problems yeah, than yeah. what we're talking about. But the problem is there's sometimes a review process that goes on for perpetuity. And I would argue the, the administration has had a Russian policy review that's gone on, I think, we're at 15, 14 months. Because we're reviewing because it's really hard to take really tough Step. so I just the review needs to come to a, a point where there is a, um, a conclusion and then action taken and I know I, I say that knowing how incredibly difficult that is both within the US government and within the uh, the alliance finally I just would say one thing and, and I understand this is really hard this is really expensive and this is just a difficult process to get your arms around but again it if we can't attack this, it sort of hollows out Article Five, And this is, you know, in some concerns why Poland is sort of creating a more robust national presence. There's a tension there if we say, gosh, we just can't do it. We just can't do it. That leaves some questions about viability down the road. I know that's not what we're talking about, but I'm just saying, if we sort of are defeatist about this, then that does send a message that we just, golly, this is a threat too big for us to, to challenge.
0: Staff, what contingency keeps you up at night? Well,
3: <laughs> actually, a, a ballistic missile coming from Syria tipped with chemical weapons. That's um, cool. Because, well, chemical weapons, Paul is here. Paul Walker, ambassador, uh, can tell you more about the situation. But I think we, we, no one can at the moment be 100% sure that there is no a bit of chemicals left in, in Syria uh, yet. And there was one missile which has penetrated air, air defense systems. Uh, well, c- currently uh, you know, uh, protecting the uh, big city centers. Anyway, um, also I would uh, be concerned, I'm still concerned about Iran's always developing missile capabilities. Because yep. Iran is taking advantage of the situation all the time, whether it's under stress, whether it's uh, relaxed. Uh, its capabilities have always been developed. Just look at 10 years ago, and now they are far more difficult uh, to cope with. And, and with or without NATO, in 10, 20 years down the road, Turkey will be here, will be there, uh, neighboring Iran. So Turkish uh, authorities are concerned about Iran's as well as uh, southern neighbor's capabilities. Thank
0: you.
2: Fred's. Uh I would uh, definitely agree with Mustafa that for me, the Southeastern... Mm-hmm. Uh, portion of NATO Europe is the most irritating one because there is a multitude of risks, uh, uh, non-state actors, state actors, everything mixed together in an explosive version. So I'm, I'm really concerned with that area. I think uh, Russia's rhetoric, rhetoric and, and other activities uh, are a point of concern, but uh, more rationally uh, approachable and I think more rationally uh, also handable uh, on the political side. But uh, not to be misunderstood, I think we need to uh, be firm as an alliance. Russia needs to understand, I repeat it again, the red lines for the alliance, that Article 5 is definitely uh, uh, something that is uh, maintained by the whole alliance and that the allies will stand together in the defense and thus, let's say, rhetoric by the incoming chairman of the military committee that the Baltic states will be overrun in two days is not a good one. Because I still believe that uh, uh, NATO standing together under Article 5, and I I don't have any doubt that NATO will stand together under Article 5, will also tell the Russians, Okay, this is an endeavor that goes definitely too far. And we should tell the Russians, if you try to do it, we go beyond the Baltic states. Watch it. Uh, So that is, uh, when I said, uh, talking about red lines. So we
1: will not... uh, Frank. Thank you, Fritz. That's a good hard ending. (laughs) (laughs) He likes it. Uh, I would say, from my perspective, the biggest concern is on NATO's southeastern flank. Uh, You have Iran... Uh, which has the largest inventory of ballistic missiles in the Middle East. They are continuing to develop and deploy these capabilities. And I would say uh, it is imperative that as long as Iran continues to develop and deploy ballistic missile capabilities, the U.S. will work with our friends and partners in the region to develop effective missile defenses to deny them any advantages from those ballistic missiles whether they be military or political Uh, secondly i think when we think about the east we also need to remember that nato and the united states have a broad range of deterrent capabilities and i'll come back to the point I made earlier. We need to be very realistic about the technical capabilities of our missile defense systems, number one. And two, we have to, as the general mentioned, be very, very cognizant of the political issues, too. You know, for 15 or 20 years, we have been going around saying that our missile defenses are not directed against Russia. If we were all of a sudden uh, to change that policy, uh, that would fundamentally give the Russians a political victory to say, this is about us. We've been telling you all, on, all along. So we need to be cognizant of that.
0: Thank you. I'm going to open it up and uh, just ask people who have questions to be, just give me your name, your affiliation. Go right to the question so we can save time. Questions?
4: we done? <laughs> Nisuguran,
1: University of Maryland. My questions are to Assistant Secretary Rose. As you would like to always emphasize, it's going to be phased and adaptive. Yep. So, what can we expect? in recent changes of the threat calculus to increase in the plans? Could we expect to see more TAD systems, for instance, just because you just came from the Middle East, probably from Qatar? And my second question is about the Black Sea. The AGS platforms have been to the Black Sea, Mm -hmm. but the backbone of the system has always been the Eastern Mediterranean. In case of an escalation, or even without an escalation scenario, could we possibly see an AG's presence in the uh, Black Sea? Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, great, question.
4: great question.
1: Two very good questions. Uh, uh, the first part, phased and adaptive. Fully agree. Uh, we will adapt our systems as the threat evolves. Uh, And that's what we have been doing over the past several years. So the bottom line is, as the threat changes, we will have mobile and transportable capabilities that can swing as the threat evolves. Uh, With regards to the Black Sea, uh, the United States has no plans to permanently deploy Aegis missile defense capabilities in the Black Sea. Uh, We follow the Montrose Convention, which prohibits us from deploying things on a permanent basis. But if contingencies required we have the capability to send Aegis ballistic missile defense capable ships into the Black Sea. And as you know, there have been several occasions in which we have sent those ships in the Black Sea for other missions, because it's also important to note that our Aegis BMD ships are multi-mission ships. So the bottom line is no plans to, de- uh, to permanently deploy Aegis BMD ships in uh, the Black Sea, but should a contingency require it, we can send capabilities there to help defend our allies against the ballistic missile threat.
0: Mustafa, you want to add to that? Well, actually, the you, important Turkey thing like, is, yeah, would you use capability the motor- ships con- in the Black Sea. Yeah, I
3: mean, motor a conversion is something that Turkey pays a lot of attention. And during the 2008 uh, you know, crisis between Georgia and uh, Russia, Turkey uh, had war, its uh, American uh, uh, allies, uh, authorities, is not extending the duration, which is 21 days, and there are also some other limits, limitations with respect to tonnage. So um, uh, the uh, Montreal convention is important in the sense that Turkey and Russia are on the same page, and although there are some uh, proposals which have not been officially put on the table by uh, Bulgaria, by, Russia, uh, by Romania, but people are concerned if uh, the Montreal Convention is open to discussion. It may not be uh, put back again, and something that would uh, represent a consensus situation, which is uh, already uh, sensitive an issue. So, therefore, uh, I'm glad to hear from Frank that the uh, U.S. does not have, at least for the foreseeable future, to permanently station uh, uh, naval uh, surface ships in the Black Sea. Okay. Next, sir.
5: Uh, Thank you. Um, This is probably for Mr. Rose, but Ms. Connolly might have a a, a comment on this as well. It falls into the category of I only know what I read in the newspapers, Mm -hmm. but two weeks ago I read of Secretary of Air Force uh, James's comments while I believe at the Paris Air Show um, about the role of Russia as an evolving threat. Uh, Two mornings ago in this room uh, we listened to... uh, asked Chairman Thornberry to talk about a strategy for America which talked about the emergence of Russia as a threat. Would you be concerned that the focus or applicability of our missile defense capabilities toward Russia, uh, that that distinction might be lost in what appears to be a larger trend of talking about Russia as a threat in a larger sense? Thank you.
1: Well, you know, I do not have the lead for our Russia policy at the State Department, but uh, I'll just repeat the point that I made a little bit earlier. Obviously, there are changes underway. Uh, We are looking at the implications of those changes, both internally with the U.S. government, but also with our NATO allies. Um, You know, and again, I think we need to be cognizant when we think about potential responses to Russian aggression, that uh, with regards to missile defense, we are very, very, I would say, cognizant of the technical capabilities. Now, I'll reaffirm the point I make, because I know we have uh, several members of the press here, is that our missile defenses are not directed against Russia, nor do they have the technical capability to deal with the threat uh, from Russia. But what I would also say is, there is a recognition that things have changed and therefore, NATO will need to look at this very, very closely and the United States will do this in close coordination with our NATO allies. Heather?
4: oh, Oh. Uh, You know, I I think I'm uh, pretty clear. As as long as we don't accept, don't self-impose limitations on our assessment. I I think that's what this comes down to. Uh, As much as the politics are really difficult within the alliance. The politics are dreadful uh, with Russia. Let us not limit ourselves yeah. on our candid assessment. And then if there are capability r- gaps, that we think about ways to augment and fill those gaps, keep those options open.
0: I just can't help but weighing in is, my sense is that the alliance as a whole is limiting itself by not more forcefully or more directly addressing what is a growing Russian missile threat to the region, particularly uh, in, un, under circumstances in which they would have limited, uh, limited ambitions, the lim- limited strike. And the history of missile defense has been, in the alliance, has been one in which coalitions of the willing within the alliance have driven the missile defense agenda forward. Uh, that's clearly the case with the GBI. That was clearly the case with the EPAA. Uh, And it'll probably have to be again the case uh, on, on dealing with the new threat environment we face in Europe. And the fact is that today there are allies who are making significant investments in missile defense against the Russian threat. The Poles are spending 5 to $10 billion on a system that's not designed against the South. Right. But may I open up one last question, sir, in the back there?
3: Hi, my name is Stephen Wallace. I'd like to – can anyone address the non-U.S. contributions to NATO's nuclear weapons defense – missile defense system, and in particular, the the Dutch decision to upgrade the Smart L radars on their frigates and whether Germany and Denmark will participate in that program?
1: Great. No, that's a very good question. Well, for example, at the lower tier level, you have a number of NATO allies who have Patriot Pac-3. For example, Germany, the Netherlands uh, have Patriot Pac-3. Spain has uh, an older version of Patriot Pac-2. So that's a baseline capability. But you correctly note that a number of other Allies are looking to make contributions to the NATO missile defense. For example, Denmark is uh, actively looking at potentially upgrading their SMART-L radars. Uh, secondly, the Netherlands is, I believe, has committed to do the same. Um, you know, one of the things when we talk about missile defense cooperation, sometimes we get too obsessed from my perspective with the shooters. Uh, Just as important as the shooters is having sensor capabilities and you have a number of NATO allies like the Dutch, like the Danes who have sensor capabilities. Uh, Also, the Spanish with their F-100 frigate have the uh, Aegis uh, Aegis radar on board, as do the Norwegians. So uh, I think we're slowly making progress in this area. Is it where the United States would like to see our allies? I think the answer is no. But have we made considerable progress over the past 10 years? Uh, I think the answer is yes. Uh, As Heather and Ian both mentioned, 10 or 15 years ago, missile defense was a very divisive issue within the alliance. And I would say the efforts of three administrations, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, uh, have really paid dividends. We are not talking about missile defense now as a divisive issue within the alliance. But I think it is a key element of the types of capabilities the alliance needs to uh, deal with the emerging security challenges of the 21st century. And I think that was uh, made very clear in the most recent NATO uh, strategic concept.
0: Now, before I turn to Fritz, I'd just add, I think actually your administration, your team's done a great job linking those sensors networks together. Uh, that certainly didn't happen during the Bush administration. Not. Good we hadn't thought about it. but This is a priority you all brought to the table. And it's just a very simple way for Europeans to make a direct contribution, not just to their own defense, but to the defense of the U.S. homeland. And that's real burden
2: sharing. Fritz? Uh, only a few sentences uh, in addition to what Frank already said. Uh, uh, I would like to mention uh, that NATO is providing the command and control capability with the node at uh, Ramstein, and this command and control capability at the moment is uh, giving the same command and control capability as is existing on the U.S. national side at UCOM, during the European Command Air Defense mission. Okay. So that there is no change. And as Frank said, uh, especially the sensor contribution that uh, might become available by the modernization of the smart air radars on the European frigates uh, by the Netherlands, uh, the Danish, and probably the Germans, uh, uh, will contribute greatly to enhancing the sensor network uh, mm-hmm. de- <clears throat> being capable of detecting ballistic missile launches. Uh, and further on, there are uh, other contributions. Uh, like host nations' responsibilities by, by the Spanish, as mentioned by Frank already. In Rota, they provide the replenishment port facilities that are <clears throat> desperately needed for the Aegis deployed into the Mediterranean, and further other uh, contributions that are possible. And modernization is uh, also at the horizon concerning some capabilities, etc. And the Dutch and the Germans committed, the patriots already in the interim capability, to uh, the ballistic missile defense machine providing protection defense uh, of the TBY-2 site in Turkey against a short-range ballistic missile threat. So you really see that ballistic missile defense in NATO Europe is a shared commitment, is uh, a mission that is undertaken by 28 nations supporting each other. I'm going to close by uh, exercising the right for yeah, one t- last question.
3: Can I make a, a final sure, remark about the
2: situation? But got to be brief because well, we're, we're yeah, tight very here. Very brief.
3: I hope that Turkey will make uh, a choice which will be best for Turkey and best for the alliance.
1: I and hope democracy. you buy Patriot. Yeah. and either the Patriot
3: or the Eurosam system, the European or the American, will eliminate not only the te- you know, technical operational problems but also this political problem. But trust me, it's not an issue of uh, money. I mean, uh, the Chinese system is 3.4 billion something. Yeah, European countries around 5 billion. So far, Turkey has spent $6.6 billion for the Syrian refugees in Turkey. Yep. So, $6.6 billion spent for humanitarian purposes. I mean, almost double the you know, uh, uh, value of uh, the, the Chinese system. So, I believe uh, everyone should understand that Turkey is not bluffing, and Turkey is looking for what is best for itself as well as for its alliance.
0: I'm going to allow our. our it's a g- very important point. I'm going to allow our, our, our discussions here just so to close, but I want to throw a thought out. I'd be interested in your reaction. We talked about the contingency to the east and the contingency to the south. The alliance today is debating whether or not to give Sakyor, the commander of NATO, greater authorities to exercise a force in defensive ways. Wouldn't one of them, the natural, least provocative uh, authorities to give Yor? would be to deploy, on his own will, allied air defense assets to re, to, within the alliance's borders to those areas under, under threat in the, in the face of a particular contingency. That is to move Patriot batteries from, from Germany, from the Netherlands, uh, from Greece, from Spain, other air defense capabilities that are coming online. Give them that ability to move those a- assets within the alliance territory. It'd be defensive, it'd be responsive. It's a response capability we don't have today.
4: Uh, yes, in theory, I think the politics right now make mm-hmm. that uh, impossible. But I think it's this: we have to. Military leaders need to continue to sensitize NATO's political leadership and exercise how this works, both below threshold events and how we have to exercise. Political leaders have to exercise this in order to give the military commanders confidence when they see a very rapid situation unfolding. That would be my two cents.
3: Well, back in 1991, when Turkey called upon the uh, allies to come and uh, you know, uh, display solidarity against Saddam, people thought it was too little too late. Back in 2003, February, uh, uh, activation of, uh, enactment of Article 4 did not happen because of German-French opposition. But this time, in 2012, uh, uh, the Patriot batteries uh, have been deployed from uh, Germany, from Netherlands and the United States. So th- for the first time, uh, Turks have become more confident, comparatively compared mm-hmm. speaking, confident about NATO's uh, presence would be assured if and when Turkey would be in trouble.
2: That's interesting, Rich. Ian, uh, during the times of the Cold War, it was an authority given to Secur yeah. because our defense forces were command forces, yeah. and uh, operational command included the capability for Secur to deploy the assets given him given to him uh, for the air defense purposes to where he sees fit. Uh, Nowadays, the only capability he has under his uh, direct command is the TPY-2 radar and the air policing forces, but no air defense forces. Uh, And uh, I think it could be an idea uh, to uh, extend again uh, the authority to secure, to deploy air defense assets uh, in accordance with indications and warnings, which uh, are definitely work together in the alliance, so that there is, uh, let's say, the cooperation with the allies within the NATO context uh, how to assess indications and warnings and then authorize SACUR to deploy uh, defensive missiles. Uh, Ian, I
1: would word. just say, you know, as we move towards a potential declaration of NATO initial missile defense capability next year, uh, hopefully at the Warsaw Summit. Uh, these are the types of issues that uh, NATO is working through right now. So it is a very important question. We're working those issues right now internally uh, at the alliance, and hopefully by the time of uh, uh, initial operating capability is declared, we will work out many of those things, like concept of operations, as well as rules of engagement. Great. Well, I'm not going to close
0: with any wise, wor- w- wise words of wisdom. But uh, what I will say is I left this panel uh, certainly more informed about the progress that's being made in developing a transatlantic missile defense architecture, but a little concerned whether or not we're moving su- with sufficient haste and determination on that. I want to thank our, uh, our panelists. and. This-